Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Let's take a sidebar and listen to that old history clip that uh, Rick just mentioned. It's from an interview with Charles Armstrong, uh, conducted by Sandra Denise Harvey back in 1995. Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. This is an episode uh, I've been wanting to do for some time. It actually pairs well with the the barbed wire episode uh, we did a while back, just thinking about technological changes and the way in which they impact this community in which we call home. And I'm fortunate to have a friend who's an expert on air conditioning. And and we may have lost some listenership just now. Stick with us. This is a fascinating topic. But Rick Tullis uh, is with us today. Rick is a a founding partner of Capstone Mechanical, current president, uh, president of the Greater Waco Chamber of Commerce, school board member, uh, he's a civil servant and his list of accol- accolades are long, uh, but he also is excited about the history of air conditioning. Is that my cue to get excited? <laughs> Got to bring the heat, so to say, okay. or the cool, I guess. Yes. Yeah, bring the cool. Yes. Is that, we're going to do that all this whole time? <laughs> no, yeah. that's it. That's, okay. that's the end of the puns. All right. Yeah, Stephen, I'm ex- I am excited to be here, and uh, there may be one or two, th- one or two interesting things about air conditioning in Waco, and hopefully we'll find them. Um, if not, uh, then yeah. Well, I, I can think of few tech technology, technological innovations that, you know, impacted the South and of course Waco is, and the West and Waco's kind of centered on this dividing line, uh, between the South and West air conditioning had a tremendous impact on, uh, Waco, the development of Waco and the development of places like Waco. What, what are your kind of thoughts when you think philosophically? We'll, st- we'll start with the philosophical. <laughs> the philosophic. Yeah. Just, just about that, that kind of change. And yeah, certainly the, in the 20th century, air conditioning was uh, considered by many one of the, the greater inventions of the, of the century. In reality, you know, like most things, it didn't just happen at, at an exact time. There was a process that uh, brought about air conditioning, and that's part of the story that we'll uh, we'll tell here in a minute. And Waco's a part of that story, but um, certainly having uh, the the ability to cool spaces, hot spaces like Waco, Texas, uh, changed migration patterns. It changed industry. Um, you know, many, many uh, uh, prior to uh, having mechanical cooling, mechanical air conditioning, you know, a lot of businesses would either shut down in the summer because it got too hot. Or they were limited geography by their geography of where they could be. Um, a few years back, I, I got had an opportunity to go um, to Scotland and visit some uh, distilleries there. And uh, even there, very you know, northern Scotland, cool climate. I mean, there's a reason distilleries are there because you have to have cold water mm. to condense the uh, um, condense the alcohol vapors and and make the whiskey. And so they would use the 
you know, at, at every distillery, there was a, a, a beautiful uh, river running through the middle of the distillery with 45 degree water in it. And that was how they, um, you know, that was the water they used for their process. Well, you can imagine, you know, here in Waco, and, and I did get an opportunity to to help with the uh, the Balcones distillery, there's a lot of mechanical cooling that's going on there because we don't have a 45-degree river running through the mid- middle of Balcones. And um, so you, you just think, extrapolate that over all the industries that have some kind of process that needs cooling. And uh, these, these uh, uh, machines that, as they were developed, really opened up industry um, that was mainly centered in the Northeast and, and uh, brought it into the Sun Belt. Yeah. Uh, Thoreau once said, uh, once fire was invented, there became the necessity to organize life around it. And I, I think that we could say the same for artificial cooling. I mean, you, if you're listening to this, particularly in the summer, I mean, you're moving from cooled space to cooled space to cooled space. Even your automobile is a cooled space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of how it affected architecture, you know, the way houses were built. Uh, you go into older homes in Waco, they've got large windows with big sashes. You've got maybe an attic fan that's built into the house. You got large porches and that largely went away with, with, uh, with air conditioning. Um, some say there were some negative effects, even socially, right? People used mm-hmm. to hang out on their porches and, you know, there was a lot more community maybe in a neighborhood because people saw each other, but with air conditioning, you know, you go in your house, you shut the window, you shut the doors and you stay cool. Yeah. My building on Baylor's campus built in 1902, uh, renovated in the 1990s. The windows don't open. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a hermetically yeah. sealed space that's reliant upon. I mean, you would die in there if, if right, the right. AC went out. Yeah. Right. I, I often tell our team at Capstone that uh, air conditioning used to be a luxury item. It's now life support. Mm-hmm. The buildings, the, I mean, certainly you could think of hospitals and places like that where, um, you know, it's essential, but really any modern building, um, if you don't have some way that you're mechanically heating, cooling, filtering, I mean, even in, in the world of COVID that we're living in now, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, cleaning the air is just as important as cooling and heating it to the right temperature and, uh, and ventilating the building properly. So you think about, uh, um, you know, those factors and, and it's, it's essential to our modern life. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's okay. uh, let's back up the back this up a bit and just talk about how this evolves. Now, I did a little research when I was in my doctoral program on air conditioning in Arizona, mm-hmm. which there, you know, you had an evaporative cooling kind of model yeah. that doesn't so much work here as well. And so, how are you know maybe maybe pre AC. I mean, how are folks kind of, you talked about some architectural innovations to kind of create some breezeways and things like that, but I mean, how are folks kind of staying, staying cool before artificial cooling? Right. Well, in, um, um, as you're describing the swamp coolers, which Mm -hmm. I, I grew up in a part of Texas that was much drier up in the panhandle and the house I grew up in had swamp coolers, you know, our, our high school and our schools didn't have air conditioning. You know, some of the teachers may had a swamp cooler if they, you know, paid for one to put in their window. Um, but that was, that was the norm. And that worked in those environments really kind of as you get west of here into the more arid climates. But, but Waco, because we're so heavily influenced by the Gulf moisture, uh, is certainly in, the, in a much more uh, humid environment, which doesn't allow the 
the swamp cooler to get the desired cooling effect that somebody would want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, uh, people were just more acclimated to the weather. I mean, it's amazing. You look at the old Gildersleeve photos and um, you see wool suits and hats. Yeah. It's like the 4th of July parade. And you're like, man, those, those they got to be dying. Um, you know, the dresses with, with all kinds of uh, undergarments underneath them, you know, all, all pillowed out. And um, so it was definitely, definitely a different time. Um, uh, you know, I think of really early Texas and you, you hear people talk about the, uh, the dog run uh, architecture of mm-hmm. the, the cabins that were built on the frontier. It was the same thing. It was a, they kept a breezeway through the middle and that's how it, uh, they, they stayed cool. And they, and they would strategically pick where they built it, right? They would get it up high enough where it would get a breeze and, uh, they could survive the summers. Yeah. I have that shotgun house kind mm-hmm. of design where mm-hmm. you can open up the front door and if the back door's open, you can see the backyard, you know, just a, right. a straight kind of breezeway through there. It, you know, and I know we're primarily talking about uh, comfort cooling, but we also, in part of the story, we'll talk also about refrigeration and how yeah. that they're, they're, they're related, very related um, uh, technologies and industries. Uh, similarly, when you think about food preservation and what it was like to live, I mean, you had to eat what you kill basically pretty quick, right? You didn't have a whole lot of, you didn't have anywhere to store it. Um, I mean, there were things you could do to to dry it out or mm-hmm. or, or pack it in salt, whatever. But um, uh, even I've got a, a a friend with a farm not too far from, uh, from me that they've got an old uh, concrete structure around a... Um, a spring and the history is on that, that the, the settlers would use the, they'd store their eggs and other perishables kind of in the structure. Cause the, the cold water coming out of the spring would help uh, keep it cool and extend the life of those, of, of those products. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So there were things that people were doing. Um, um, certainly if you go up North, you know, they would actually harvest ice uh, during the winter times and they would, uh, they would pack it underground and, uh, sellers and that actually plays into our story here in a second as well. Yeah, I was going to ask. So, if we want to begin the story here, do we begin with the ice houses? I mean, is that is that kind of where <clears throat> this starts? Is that a good place to start? No, it's a horrible place to start. <laughs> well, then back it up from there. Okay, <laughs> so let me start. Um, so, so the invention of air conditioning is a southern invention. Uh, th- there was a gentleman named John Gorey. Uh, he was a a physician in Apalachicola, Florida. And in the mid, you know, 1840s, he began um, trying to solve a problem. And that was every summer, he would get a lot of sick patients. And <clears throat> being a man of science, he, he figured out, and this was actually a common medical thought at the time, <clears throat> that this condition that would happen every summer was from the bad air, mm-hmm. mal air, yeah. the malaria. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, yellow fever got called different things and there were, you know, different forms of it. Um, but uh, yeah, this malaria that would happen, especially if you think about being in Florida, you know, the wet swamps and, um, you know, you'd start smelling rotting decay and stuff out of the swamp. So, you know, correlation versus causation here. The guys had the correlation figured out, right? This bad things happen when it gets hot. Mm-hmm. So, um, his, uh, 
he, he went through an effort and said, man, if I can bring these patients into our, our hospital and I can put them in a cool room and offset the hot air that's outside, you know, let's, let's see if that helps them feel better. So he rigged up a system where he was using blocks of ice, blocks of ice that were being shipped down from the north and um, blew air across them and kept the rooms cool. And sure enough, he started seeing favorable results. Mm. These patients would, would feel better. So he was encouraged by that. But, uh, but it was challenging because ice shipments were, you know, not very dependable and the cost of ice was pretty expensive, uh, you know, as it made its way down the coast. So... Yeah, I'm doing the mileage in my head. That's quite a trip. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Ap- Apalachicola wasn't a big stop on mm-hmm. the uh, ice route. So um, so being a man of science, you know, there, there were other inventors out there that were that were playing with some different um, um, technologies and some things where, you know, this was the Enlightenment and, you know, the Industrial Revolution is just kind of getting kicked off and um, – so there's a relationship between pressure, volume, and temperature that, you know, we all learn in high school now um, called Boyle's Law. And so he understood that, that if you compress a gas, it's going to get hotter. And if you, and if that heat transfers away from it, and then you let the pressure off the gas, now it's a much colder gas than mm-hmm. it was when you started. So using that, uh, that, that technology, he actually built a, a, uh, his own little ice machine. And it would make little blocks of ice, and so he could use those in, with his patients. And uh, again, started seeing favorable results. Now, if you look in his notes, he also uh, makes mention of uh, something else that helped get rid of the bad air. You know, <clears throat> turns out in, in Florida they have a mosquito problem too. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so these patients laying in a bed, they you know they're immobile. So in the hospital they would put uh, nets over them to keep the mosquitoes off of them. And, and, you know, he, he, uh, uh, he thought, well, hey, maybe that, that, uh, that, that fine netting is, is filtering out some of the bad air. Okay. Right. Yeah. Interesting. It makes sense. Yeah. 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 And, um, so he thought between that, the filtering of the air with the nets and the cold, um, you know, that I'm creating with these ice, this, this ice, maybe I'm figuring this thing out now. We can sit here in hindsight and go, you know, what, what got figured out, you know, 50 years later was it was the mosquitoes that mm-hmm. was spreading the malaria. Um, and uh, so he almost got it. He yeah, almost figured got it out. close. Got yeah. right there. But, okay, so here's the rest of the story. He, he uh, gets a patent for his, his invention. So it's the first uh, patented um, ice-making machine, you know, with an, a cooling purpose, you know, okay. of, of cooling the air. And uh, so he's credited for that. <laughs> so that was, that was 1850. Um, he got his patent, you know, went up north to try to find some investors and, and um, uh, uh, turn this into uh, uh, a money-making operation, right? Figure out how to, how to sell this idea. Well, he ran into a problem. He ran into big ice, right? So... So these industries up there, I mean, it was a major industry where they would cut this ice and, I mean, ship it all around the world, store it. So they came at him pretty hard about his unnatural ice that <laughs> God didn't ordain. So, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's an aberration. Yes. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, Dr. Gorey, um, by uh, 1855, he was broke and, uh, and he passed away. So never, never saw the benefit of his invention. Now... 
<clears throat> there's a little bit to the lore. Um, so during that time, he uh, uh, he was friends in, in Florida with a uh, Monsieur Roussard from France. So uh, I think he was a cotton buyer from France or something, but mm. he, he was in Apalachicola, and there's a story about their uh, Bastille Day, and they were celebrating, and the Frenchman needed some some ice for his champagne, and there was none to be found. And um, uh, Gory you know, showed off his his uh, flexed his muscles and went and made a made a block of ice for him, and they you know they they had their their iced champagne. Well, uh, Roussard, you know, eventually ends up going back to France, and that kind of leads to the next part of our story. So did he t- did he takes his tech with him. Takes his technology with him to France. Yeah, at yeah. least takes some some knowledge. As the story mm-hmm. goes, takes some knowledge of this and takes it back to France. And he's friends with a guy named Ferdinand um, um, Carré, C A C A R R E Carré. And your French is really it's strong. About yeah. as yeah. good as my East Texas. And so, <laughs> um, Carré actually ends up uh, commercializing refrigeration. He's he's the first guy that really is successful with it. And um, so there's some, you know, some theories that maybe he got some ideas, but the reality is if you look into his, his background, he was, he was, uh, he and his brother had been tinkering around with stuff. Now he might've been encouraged by what he heard back in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, Carey's uh, um, commercial success, a lot of it came during the civil war. A lot of his machines got smuggled into the South because the South was cut off from their Northern ice supply yeah, blockade. Yeah. Yep. So he, he saw some benefits there, um, commercially. And then, uh, eventually in like 1876, he outfitted the first ship with a refrigeration system that was able to, to haul meat from Argentina to France and kind of really started this, um, uh, commercial ref- refrigeration, uh, trade that, uh, allowed for more global uh, commerce and mm. and uh, the shipping of food around the world. <clears throat> well, also at the time in France was a, a young man, 34-year-old man named Andrew Mole, M-U-H-L, Mole. And he was a, uh, he was a, uh, a trained machinist, and he was a contemporary of Curie. Um, not real sure, you know, how closely they work together. It's not real clear, mm-hmm. but he he had a full knowledge of refrigeration as well. Tinkered around with it in France a little bit, um, doing small scale ice operations and ice cream making, which we could do a whole podcast on ice cream. Oh man, I'm telling. Yeah, that's so. That's an early application here, which is fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah you'll see uh, that in uh, um, uh, beer mm-hmm. end up being. Oh yeah. So yeah. The, so those two, um, well, uh, so Mull, uh, I'm, I'm sure is a enterprising, uh, young man, you know, probably sees the market saturated in France, right? Curry's got already got, got that thing locked down. So, he, so, um, he decides he's going to go to Mexico and take his knowledge and, uh, set up ice works there. Um, well, according to the newspaper, the new, his, uh, the story that he gave at some point, his ship got knocked off course, and they ended up landing in New Orleans instead. <laughs> I mean, remember this is this is the you know that eighteen sixty five ish, right? Yeah. I mean, it's this, this is uh, uh, you know back the days of the Wild West, basically, yeah. right? So he uh, he goes around uh, the U.S. He travels up to the Northeast, tries to get some patents for 
his ice machine uh, and is, is not successful in doing that for some reason, but ends up back in San Antonio, Texas, <laughs> where he marries a San Antonio girl. Okay. Yep. Gets him to Texas um, and sets up his first ice machine there. So really in a, in a short time, he, so he sets one up in San Antonio, then Austin, and then in 1869, ends up in Waco. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So we can draw a line from what's going on in France to this first establishment in Waco. Even though all the way maybe back to Apalachicola. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> and so um, the, uh, um, looking, looking at my notes here, he um, gets some backers here in Waco. Uh, in fact, it's uh, some, some of the men from the Medical Association, uh, Mr. Sears, and you know, a couple other guys, they get together, pull together about $20,000, and he builds his first ice works here in Waco, uh, down on the Brazos River. In fact, um, you might find this interesting if you like the old bird's eye Waco maps. Oh, yeah. Um, in the, there's a 1873 one. Mm-hmm. And if you look on, on that, you know, it lists the major businesses on there. And one of them is his ice works. And you can actually see it. It would be... Um, What's the name of his ice works? Um, you remember? Yeah. Uh, not sure. Okay. I think it just says Ice Works Mall. I see. I, I okay. think that's all it says on the map. All right. And they actually show the building. So, And I went by there today to look. So it would be, if it were still standing, that building would be right about where... Um, right next to Indian Springs Park where you go down to Waco Paddle Co. to go if you're going to go rent, yeah, yeah, rent, yeah. rent a... Just to the right of the uh, Franklin Avenue Bridge there. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's that's where it stood. Okay. A prominent spot. Yeah. 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 And uh, um, so there on the river... So so think about this. This is 1870. Some some pretty major things are happening in Waco at that exact time uh, in space. Oh, so yeah. you had the suspension bridge mm-hmm. open up. You uh, had the Waco Tap Railroad that that just made it to town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had his ice works across there. You're kind of in the middle middle of the whole Chisholm Trail yeah. um, uh, era. Um, so I, you know, I was just thinking about it would almost seem anachronistic to 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 be in, set in that scene, have a cattle drive going across the bridge, and some guy walk out with a block of ice that he just made in his shop. <laughs> right? I mean. Yeah, Waco, Waco's top five in Texas in population at that point, as far as cities go. So there would have been a lot of activity going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and um, yeah, Waco was uh, uh, was busy, uh, but you say in, in the in the top five, so five, mm-hmm. but still that only amounted to like three thousand yeah. people. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, yeah. you get you put that in perspective, you're like, wow. I mean, Texas as a whole. Um, only had uh, a little over 800,000 yeah. at the time. Yeah. And most of that was all rural, right? That's right. I mean, there were very, very few cities. So, um, yeah, so uh, uh, Mole, uh, he was able to, he, he did start generating patents. In fact, there's several of them listed mm. that uh, um, uh, he got while he was in Waco for improving his machines. Um, and uh, he helped set up some other uh, ice houses in the area. Um, 
uh, he also he had, he had thirteen kids. Oh my goodness! All that, yeah, you so. better be selling some ice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, um, one of his sons, uh, J. A. Mole, you know, continued on the family tradition. It will, we'll we'll see in a minute. He ended up running some of the other ice works in Waco as as time went on. Okay. Um, all right. So here's an interesting excerpt. Excerpt. I was going to read real quick. Please. Out of the, out of the 1876 uh, Waco McLean County uh, Handbook where they talk about the ice manufacturing uh, company. So, okay. So it says in uh, 1869, Dr. Owens, uh, Mr. Sears, Mr. Coates, and Mr. Mull uh, procured very valuable machinery at the cost of 20,000 odd dollars for the manufacture of ice and began operations. They have shipped uh, wake. They have, they have supplied Waco since that time with an artificial uh, ice, which is 15 degrees colder and in purity and general good uh, quality superior to natural ice, mm. which I'm sure would be the case if you're cutting your ice out of the Brazos River. Yeah. Um, they have a capacity to manufacture 5,000 pounds per day, a quantity sufficient to supply the present wants of the city. So that's a lot of ice. <clears throat> well, let me put that in perspective. Yeah. Um, so, um, in, in terms of ice, so 5,000 pounds, so that's two and a half tons of ice. So if you have an air conditioner at your house, you know, the guy comes to work on your air conditioner or sell you a new one, you know, it's, hey, do you have a three ton, a five ton, um, a two and a half ton? And, and basically that, that unit of measure, uh, and this is, seems pretty old school and our industry still does it this way, but that is uh, the tonnage of an air conditioner is the equivalent to that tonnage of ice melting over a 24-hour period. I had no idea. Uh, you know, I, of course, I've, I know that's how we rate air conditioners, but I didn't know that's what it yeah. came from. Yeah, yeah so literally a two-and-a-half-ton air conditioner, if you have one of those at your, at your house, that would be the equivalent of having two-and-a-half tons of block of ice in your house melting over a 24-hour period. Wow. And um, so when you think of it that way, that wasn't a whole lot of ice yeah. they were making, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, yeah. Um, um, but I guess for their needs at the time, it was more than sufficient. And of course, uh, the, the equipment gets better over time and they're able to produce more ice, but, uh, it, well, it was a time when one horsepower seemed a lot, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't seem much. It doesn't seem much now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta put it all in perspective. So, um, so who are they supplying? I mean, who, who in their customer base is primarily, and then I don't, I wouldn't think it's residential use necessarily at that point or i mean who's who's who are they supplying to right yeah um certainly some of it was novelty right for mm. cold drinks or whatever um for the for the local populace uh, i uh, a lot of it as we see it, it it moving forward and the other ice ice houses that end up uh, showing up in waco uh comes from the transportation industry so mm. you know waco had several railroads mm -hmm. over time that that were going through here and so you can imagine if you were shipping beef up from South Texas, you know, you'd have these major stops along the way and they would have to replenish the ice in these uh, rail cars mm -hmm. until they got to the next, you know, the next uh, uh, depot where they could replenish the ice again. So that was one. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, not too long, um, you know, after that you get uh, in, into the, 1880-ish time frame, the uh, uh, 
one of the ice houses that you know you see oftentimes in Gildersleeve photos or or uh, read about is uh, the Geyser uh, Ice Company. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that that building's still standing. Yeah, it was actually owned by Anheuser Busch. So you can probably guess what they use the ice yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm um, getting thirsty thinking about it. <laughs> hey, put that down. <laughs> you got to wait till after the show. So, um, uh, in fact, uh, his son Andrew, Andrew's son uh, J. A. ended up running that uh, Geyser Ice Factory um, in the years that followed that. Um, and and I found an ad. From 1889, just so you show you some progress, right? So in 1889, the ice factory was producing 10 tons of ice a day. Okay, so, so they were they were growing. Um, we also started seeing other ice houses in in Waco. Um, <clears throat> the Big Four Ice Company was was one of their competitors. In fact, it's um, uh, you know it's got some interesting history with that that uh, that the family that owned it the. The uh, Beale family. The Beale family. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that uh, finished out and resided in Cottonland Castle. Yes. Which is another episode. Yes. Yeah. Well, and um, as we know, there's a, a, a audio clip of one of the employees of the ice company who had to haul ice up to the castle daily um, because that's how they cooled the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had some kind of system set up where they would put in blocks of uh, ice and Let's take a sidebar and listen to that oral history clip that uh, Rick just mentioned. It's from an interview with Charles Armstrong, uh, conducted by uh, Sandra Denise Harvey back in 1995. We delivered ice to the old lady, old lady Abel. She had a up in there upstairs in the castle. looked like a deep freeze. It was a wide box, about this wide, and oh gosh, it was probably eight foot long. And uh, and we carried ice from the truck. And by the way, Abel's owned part of guys or ice company. Maybe at one time they don't mm-hmm. owned all the guys company. And they were well-do people. And, uh, and she was more like, oh, maybe you might describe her like uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor or someone like that. She was. She didn't uh, associate with anybody except people in her class. Mm-hmm. And we'd go, we'd go walk in there, and she just ignored us like it was a animal through there. And mm-hmm. we carried ice bags away. We, we carried uh, crushed ice in hundred-pound bags, put on the shoulder, and go up upstairs, and and they dump it into this in, in this big box. And this big box was our air conditioner. It had fans blowing over that and blowing air through the house. And we were up there two times a day and filled that tank with ice. And um, the driver didn't get any money for that because she was killing mm-hmm. the company. That was, that was a free deal. Ironically, we're in the middle of renovating that house right now and putting in a Real air conditioning system. Oh, are you yeah. really? Y'all yeah, are yeah. doing that project. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> also, you, you start seeing, uh, you do start seeing ice as time goes on getting used domestically in, in homes. You know, the ice box, mm-hmm. right? Some of us may still call our refrigerator an ice box, mm-hmm. but 
they literally were ice boxes at one point. And uh, <clears throat> these, uh, the, the factories, you could either go pick up the ice. They also had substations uh, in the community. Uh, they had delivery drivers. You can, there's some cool pictures from Gildersleeve of uh, delivery drivers. And uh, there's a great, um, uh, uh, one, one of the great Waco, Waco historians, Roger Conger, mm-hmm. uh, in one of his, um, one of the transcripts I, I read from the oral history that uh, you guys took of him years ago, uh, he talks about being a kid. And that was his job at 13 or 14 and how, how uh, uh, you know, at, at 13 trying to wrestle a 100-pound block of ice was a challenge. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yep. So, uh, any, any questions on any of that? Well, that, that's, I mean, I would think as Waco continues to grow, um, I mean, it, it's going to become an ice center for the, for kind of this area of central Texas, I would expect. I mean, I would expect that larger ice houses to concentrate, concentrate in the cities and they would do deliveries outside right. the cities. So, um, you know, as, Ice usage increases. I see it affecting a lot of different industries. You've mentioned some of these that that it would affect. We still haven't necessarily got to the point that we're thinking about how it's changing um, our living spaces yet. I mean, so we're thinking about it in, in kind of utilitarian me- needs early on, right? More right. than more right. than recreational needs. Right. Yeah. Well, and and so one thing I wanted to point out because. Certainly, in this, uh, in the research of, of doing this podcast, one of the questions was, "Man, what what was the first building air conditioned mm. in Waco?" Well, this may be lost. I think it's going to be lost to us in history because there there was an interesting point about Andrew Mull that I I failed to mention a minute ago. Uh, he had an 1874 patent, and uh, the way the patent was um, uh, was listed. It was listed as an apparatus for the improvement of cooling air in buildings. Hmm. So I just have to imagine he was trying that out, right? Using, instead of just making ice, he was trying to figure out how to, to cool, to actually cool spaces inside of buildings. And uh, for whatever reason, it didn't uh, catch, I mean, he got a patent for mm-hmm. whatever uh, that apparatus was, but um, didn't catch on. Um, and you think about a lot of it at the time, you know, if you didn't have a steam engine handy, you really weren't going to do a whole lot mechanically, yeah. right? I mean, it wasn't like today where we go plug stuff in the wall and it works. Um, so I could see that being a major, uh, <laughs> a major drawback. Uh, kind of, kind of back to those bird's eye maps uh, uh, of Waco. One thing I love is over time, you know, the there's there's four of them. I think and over time you start seeing. By the time you get to the last one in the 1890s, there's there are dozens of smokestacks with black stuff coming out of them. And, you know, in our modern, um, you know, uh, culture, modern thought is like, oh, man, look at all that pollution. But in the mind of a, you know, 19th century person who's trying to sell their city, which was basically what those maps were for, right? Mm-hmm. To, 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 they were, um, <clears throat> you know, trying to recruit people to come to town. That was progress. That oh, yeah. was industry. That was, hey, we're modern. Look yeah. at us. Yeah. You know, we, we've got all these uh, machines running in our in our city. So <clears throat> I've seen pictures from the uh, the Philadelphia Centennial. So there's a big celebration for the 100th anniversary of the United States, the Declaration of Independence. 
and there's a there's a sketch in there of artificial cooling and it's people dressed as you might imagine in in the period and they're being blown away by artificial cooling Mm -hmm. coming in the room and it just it made me think a little bit about uh, ways in which uh we've got to we've got to grow to accept this new technology that this is something you should be doing you know you talked earlier about moving from natural ice to artificial ice that you know what is this strange technology that we yeah. may be bringing in our yeah. homes and so there's there's the technological limitations to doing artificial cooling but there's also growing to accept the, the, the that this acceptance. is what you got to do yeah it's funny in in uh, in one of the things i read uh, of a, a contemporary article about uh, using ice to cool your drinks and all that stuff there's a little footnote or a little parenthetical note of um uh, drinking ice drinks, and it says something along the lines of, uh, this was only after we determined that you couldn't freeze your stomach wall from consuming ice. <laughs> so there was fear. Right? Yeah, there was there some was, those big ice guy. Well, no, they would have told you to use yeah, ice. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so to, to, to tie a, a bow on a couple of these thoughts we just had on uh, not only the production of ice, but uh, power, you know, how you're going to do it. Um, it, it really was, uh, as as time progressed, and we got in the 20th century, and um, we started getting power plants in, in Waco and in other cities, obviously. And now you had electricity in homes. That's what killed the ice business, right? So now you can actually buy a refrigerator, and you didn't need ice deliveries anymore. And... Uh, and, and if you look at some of the advertisements, some of the stories, then the it was the electric companies, and here TPNL, Texas Power and Light, was the power generator here in Waco. You know, they they would uh, promote things like refrigerators because they wanted to generate more load on their grid, right? So yeah. they they would uh, you know wouldn't, you didn't go to the department store and or you didn't go to Best Buy and buy a refrigerator. You know, you you would get one through your power company. Yeah, and. Uh, so over time, you know, that's what diminished, ended up diminishing the need for, for, uh, the ice houses. Um, the, the geyser ice house did, did continue on. It eventually got, uh, uh, uh purchased by a company called Southland that it was the forerunner to Seven Eleven, and I, yeah. And then eventually ready ice selling bagged ice. Right. Yeah. In, in its in its last vestige, the the old Geyser Ice Building uh, was a storage facility for ice that was probably being produced somewhere else before they eventually shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, I so I think of the twenties. I think of the nineteen twenties as this period where, you know, by that point in cities, you're getting on the grid. Most folks have a, have access to some electricity if they're living in Waco. Mm-hmm. And so these sort of appliances that you're talking about would be the time we're bringing in them the home. But it also seems like that would be the period where artificial cooling, you know, the, the expansion of the grid might make artificial cooling more of a reality and more of a possibility. Right, right. So, uh, so the technology is catching up. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, we'll, we'll jump back into our air conditioning side of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the guy known as the father of air conditioning is a guy named Willis Carrier. Um, you might recognize that name. I do. Yes. Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, Willis it was a uh, young engineer in the early 1900s, and so he um, uh, 
first in trying to solve a problem at a printing press. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, a printer had problems with humidity, kind of gumming up his papers. It's going through his machine. And so he devised a machine that took the humidity out of the air and dried the air out so that this printing press could run better. Of course, it didn't take a whole lot of um, carrying that thought forward to realize, hey, I can actually cool rooms, right? And so that led to more development. Eventually, he was um, uh, creating systems to to put into uh, hospital wards and uh, uh, theaters. Uh, so so that, that continued... Uh, to progress, and of course, there were other inventors and other people jumping into the business at that at that point as well. So you're right. Really, by the by the 20s, we start seeing uh, air conditioning become mainstream in a commercial sense, right? Mm-hmm. It really wasn't making it into homes yet. In fact, um, uh, Carrier was created the first high-rise office building to be air conditioned was actually built in San Antonio, uh, called the Milam Building, and it opened in 1928. Um, so that was the first full-scale, you know, large modern building purpose-built with air conditioning in it. Um, certainly you had, you had smaller buildings or parts of buildings being renovated with an air conditioning system, um, and that happened here in Waco. So, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of them that, that we've uh, looked at or stumbled upon, uh, the Roosevelt Hotel, I think, in... 27, 28. Yeah, so it was a Hilton and then becomes right. the Roosevelt. Uh, 27 opened. And I, yeah, we I found that piece where they're talking about, I think their dining room and they had one other room that was air-cooled. You know, yeah. not not the not the apartments or the, the rooms, right. but they had some common spaces that were right. cooled. Yeah, yeah, and uh, if, if you go out to the uh, Hilton, Con- the Conrad Hilton uh, historical website, they actually list that on the timeline as his first air-conditioned hotel. Oh, really? Public spaces only. Is yeah. That, is that, oh, it, interesting. It, it, uh, okay. It denotes that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So um, uh, similarly, there, you know, the Waco uh, history site talks about the uh, the Hippodrome. So another, you know, another good commercial prospect, right? Public mm-hmm. spaces like theaters, hotels, restaurants. Um, I guess they'd had a fire somewhere in the mid twenties and, and they'd renovated it. And when it reopened in 28, it had air conditioning. Um, so those are two early adopters that we know about. Um, also, uh, came across an article, uh, about the elite, not, not the elite that we know on the circle, but Downtown. the one that used to be on, in, on Austin Avenue and, uh, in like mid thirties, 35 ish, uh, getting air conditioning, um, it was probably it, it said it was the first air conditioned building in Waco, but obviously we don't wasn't because we were the other two we just mentioned. But it was probably the first air conditioned restaurant. Mm-hmm. Would be my guess. Okay, I don't want you, Mister Engineer. I don't want you to do a deep dive on this, but oh, can no. you explain in simple terms, like how do these early systems work? Like, you know, are they cooling coils and they're blowing air over coils? You know, again, I don't want to go. I don't want to go in a deep dive in this, but in general, how are they working to... When you do a podcast, how do yeah. you do the whiteboard? <laughs> yeah, see, I, I don't want that level of description. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so so basically the miracle of refrigeration, which I just I, I described a little bit earlier using the, um, uh, the relationship between pressure, volume, and temperature. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, uh, and there's there's more than one way to 
to cool things down. We're going to talk about the vapor compression cycle. So, so think about you've got a gas in a closed system and you have a compressor. So what do you uh-huh. think a compressor does? It compresses. It compresses things. Good job. Thanks, Rick. So, so it takes that, that uh, refrigerant gas that's in the system, compresses it, which heats it up. Then it goes through. Uh, you got two coils. You have a condenser coil, which is the one outside. So now this hot gas goes through this condenser coil. So it's hotter than the air outside. Um, so, uh, we, we know from the laws of thermodynamics is that heat is going to transfer from something hotter to something colder. So if you make that coil outside hot with the hot gas in it, you're going to re- a bunch of that heat's going to go to the uh, outside. And, uh, so now you have a, um, and it's going to condense. That's why it's called a condenser. So it goes from a, from a vapor to a liquid. Then that liquid comes back inside the building and, uh, it, it, the pressure gets dropped. So it's high pressure. So you have a little valve and as that, um, as that liquid goes through that valve, the pressure drops drastically. So now you got a really cold, uh, liquid and gas mixture that goes through your evaporator coil. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the name implies now that, uh, that, 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 uh, liquid gas mixture completely evaporates it. So it absorbs a bunch of heat in the air that's blowing across it and takes the air in the room from, you know, 75, 80 degrees down to 60, 55 degrees, somewhere in that range, and blows it back into the space. Okay. Okay, so you're describing to me what I would think of as a modern air conditioning system. I mean, in other words, I I can think of how the internal combustion engine has changed in the car since the 20s, but that doesn't sound radically different than what I might see inside my unit if I broke it apart right now. Yeah, you, you, you're exactly right. The, the essential technology hasn't changed at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns out the laws of physics hold true in 1902 is in 2022. Yeah. But um, certainly the machines have gotten more efficient. There's more technology involved, similar to the internal combustion engine. It's the technically the same engine, but, mm-hmm. you know, now you're getting 40 miles a gallon instead of eight. Yeah, so. Yeah, interesting. Um so yeah, they they essentially worked the same. Now it, it was, um, uh, you know, each of these systems was a custom system put together. It, so that'd be a, a difference to think about too. So they were very expensive, custom built, custom designed for every space. Um, you know, there there was no off the shelf components. And and as time goes on, you start to see that happen. In fact, it's in the um, uh, as you get kind of post World War II, and really some of these th- these inventions happened before, but because of the industrial boom of the of the war era, you know, now we start seeing window air conditioners being mass produced. You know, a company called Friedrich, which was down in San Antonio, we've mentioned San Antonio quite a yeah. bit this podcast, yeah. huh. uh, became one of the major producers of window units post war, and uh, so a lot of these houses that were not built for air conditioning, you know, you could at least put one in a room somewhere. Right, and now now you had uh, some amount of cooling, so that that was how most of them converted early on. Uh, but then you started seeing uh, housing developments in the fifties start to uh, be built, purpose built with air conditioning, kind of a different architecture. Kind of we talked about in insulation of the home, everything started started ratcheting up. Um, yeah, and, and same thing commercially. I, uh, I I'm not sure what the first commercial built, uh, purpose built commercial building was in Waco to have air conditioning, but uh, 
I do know at Baylor because I can go back and look at those plans. You guys have a lot of them digitized on site mm-hmm. uh, on your uh, uh, archive site. The uh, Armstrong Browning Library, which was kind of designed mid to late forties, actually built, um, uh, opened up in 1950, uh, was purpose built with an air conditioning cooling system in it, not just a heating system, not just a ventilation system. Um, so I don't know if that's the first one in Waco, but, but, uh, uh, you know, some that were kind of close in age. I mean, uh, <clears throat> Waco Hall was built, uh, certainly after the invention of, of air conditioning, um, and it, it had an extensive ventilation system in it. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. 1930 and it gets finished. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, uh, it, it just had a, a, a massive ventilation system in it. So, um, you know, back then they, in the summertime, you know, you wouldn't do events in your, um, in your, in your theater like that or in your hall. Um, in fact, it was, uh, just a few years ago, um, uh, the Masonic headquarters over here, not too far from where we're sitting, um, our, my friends at Lockridge Priest renovated that building and put air conditioning in it for the first time. It had a massive ventilation system. And in fact, so, so the state um, Masonic meeting could only happen, right, at a certain time of the year, you know, December, January-ish time of the year, because that's the only time they could keep the building cool enough mm-hmm. for an auditorium that large with that many people in it. But yeah. uh, um, as you can imagine, that that pattern played out all over the place pre-air conditioning. You know, in the summertime, people just did not gather in those spaces. So. Yeah, to connect the story of the Hilton, which becomes the Roosevelt, I saw an ad from the 50s that's advertising all rooms cooled. You know, so like that, you know, that next. Yeah, so the Depression's going to slow this down. World War II mm-hmm. is going to slow this down. But post-war, I would think AC is going to, like the television, is going to kind of take off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I can tell you in the 1950s and 60s, Many of the buildings, historic buildings, and even the new buildings that were built at that time, start showing up with air conditioning in them. You know, we've we've been we've worked in a lot of these buildings that are kind of on their second, or third generation of air conditioning systems. And mm-hmm. uh, um, I mean, you go down in the in the bowels of these buildings, and you know, if you're a guy like me, you think it's really cool. You know, these this really old equipment and the way it's running and uh, some, sometimes it's almost a shame to rip it out to put in the modern stuff, but, uh, but certainly needed. Um, and so, so as that becomes mainstream, right? A lot of the, a lot of the churches, the businesses, you know, academic buildings at Baylor start to get converted. You know, that's when we, we start seeing some, um, some recognizable names in the air conditioning industry in Waco. Mm-hmm. So Jacobs Cathy, one of the uh, companies that's been around since 1956, um, Lockridge Priest was started in 1963, um, and and there were, you know several others that didn't make it. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but yeah. those are two that I think most people would would see those names around town and recognize them. And um, of course, they're named after the guys who started them. So I mean, those 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 were the uh, the pioneers. Um, and I would think by this point, we're standardizing systems. We're not custom building. Like the houses they're building in these right. subdivisions, right. we're mass-producing units, and, right. and the cost is coming down because of that. And, <clears throat> cost is coming down. You know, one of the, one of the places, too, uh, you know, I mentioned 
my high school didn't have air conditioning. Did yours? It did, yeah. East Texas, oh. it did, yeah. Wow, you guys yeah. were. Yeah, we needed it. <laughs> guys Extremely really humid also. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, th- I bet many of the people who, you know, went through school in Waco in the 70s and 80s didn't have air conditioning. So yeah. it was really during that time where you started seeing schools uh, investing in that uh, technology and, and start purpose-building schools that way. You, you can really notice the architecture changes because – you drive by a school that has no windows that, you know, it looks, it, you know, uh, not very aesthetically pleasing, but that was the reason, right? Cause windows are not as efficient and, and stuff like that started to get really minimized. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, at this point it becomes almost ubiquitous, right? It becomes mm-hmm. a, a normal part of society and something that's, that's expected everywhere. Uh, we also Waco, um, benefited from some industries related to the air conditioning business as well. Um, not just the contractors that I mentioned before. Uh, uh, there was a, uh, a gentleman named Herb Kay, who was a, a an Aggie engineer who started a manufacturing air conditioning systems here and uh, started a company called Command Air. Um, uh, he, he was actually uh, fairly innovative, so he was one of the early... Um, adopters or one of the early experimenters really into what's called ground source heat pumps. So instead of rejecting the heat to the air using, you know, putting pipes in the ground and using the ground as your cooling source and and heating source at times too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that, uh, that technology actually, uh, got him acquired by the train company in the early nineties, 1991. So he sold out to train, uh, and, and, Many people may be familiar with the plant out towards McGregor mm-hmm. uh, on Highway 84. So that was, at first, that was Command Air and then eventually Train. And ironically, that's where I started my career in 1993. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. It, um, as big a deal as that Frenchman coming to Texas, I think, yeah. Um, almost. Maybe <laughs> this podcast might get me there. So the, uh, another industry I know about that actually produces components for air conditioning systems that's still here in town is Packless Industries on, on uh, Imperial Drive. So they, they produce heat exchangers and other things. I'm not sure when they started in Waco. The company's been around since 1933, so they've, they've been doing it a while. Um, uh, and then uh, I think another in- interesting uh, uh, note would be our friends at TSTC. So I don't know how much you've covered their history, but 1965, Old Air Force Base converted mm-hmm. into Technical College, and uh, uh, one of their early programs was the uh, air conditioning program to train technicians for uh, really the whole state. So they've they've I don't know, produced thousands of technicians that we all rely upon. So, mm-hmm. so when would you say Waco crosses the meridian of uh, air conditioning no longer being a, a luxury but a necessity? Mm. <clears throat> like with the well, auto- automobile, I would say the twenties is kind of when sure, that happens. Sure. But yeah. Yeah. I'd say in the sixties and seventies is, is really when you're making that flip. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at that point, even if you don't have a centralized air conditioning system, you're, you're getting a window unit or something. And, um, yeah, there's probably very few, uh, houses at this point that don't have some kind of mechanical cooling. We've, we, we've talked about a few landmarks. I'd love to ask about the Alico building about, just because it, it's such an unusual structure in a lot of different ways, but I'm, and I know they had their own artisan or artesian well 
mm-hmm. down in the basement. They're, they're self-sufficient as far as the water supply goes. So I know they had to think about cooling. And so do, do you, are you familiar with what they had in that building? Yeah, I know, I know a little yeah. bit. I've been down in the bottom of that, uh, that building, and, and it, is, it is super cool. I mean, it's like going, you feel like you're in the bottom of a ship, right, in the bowels of a ship. There's a, still a huge boiler down there. And uh, they would use that artesian water uh, in the boiler to, uh, to steam heat the building. We really haven't talked about heating, I mean, right? Yeah. Part of air conditioning is heating. Um, uh, but that, that uh, uh, you know, does bring up a good point. A lot of these systems, especially in large buildings, that they already had a steam heating system in them. And uh, this happened a, a lot in the Northeast as well in those older buildings. Uh, the way to convert them to cooling, the easiest way to convert them to cooling, was then to put in a chilled water system, use the same pipes, change out the steam radiator, they put a little, what's called a fan coil, put that in instead of the, the uh, radiators. And so now you magically had heating and cooling. Okay, so the, the, the piping heating system becomes your duct work for your cooling system, becomes kind of your, your, your passageway for your cooling system. Right, yeah, right, yeah. You're, you're circulating that, that chilled water, 45 mm-hmm. degree water, then to be used at those fan coils to cool the air. Yeah, okay. So, um, um, so that that conversion at some point took place at Alico. I couldn't mm-hmm. find exactly when, but if you look on the top of the building, there's there's uh, large cooling towers. So that's how they're rejecting the heat, and then they've got uh, you know machines on each floor that are generating the cooling. So. Uh, it, a good example of that as well uh, is at Baylor. They have a district cooling system, right? They've got a, a, a in the middle of the campus. They have a, a facility that just uh, generates cold water, and um, that cold water is in pipes that circular circulated around the whole campus. And so, most buildings have a tap onto that, and you you know taps up into the building, and then that cold water circulated through the building that goes through coils and then air is blown across those coils to cool the space. Yeah, that, that is a structure that's a mystery to most Baylor students as they walk by it, if they notice it there by the library. <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. But I, but I park there and I hear it at work. I can hear what, that process you're talking about at work with water flowing. Yeah. Yeah. So. And are you thankful when you hear it? I am. I okay, am. Yeah. And probably not as much as I should be, but this will help. Um, so I wanted to ask you to come full circle a little bit. You said uh, Capstone did the Roosevelt renovation. And so we, we talked about the Hilton becomes the Roosevelt as one of the first systems in a commercial building in Waco. We don't mm-hmm. know if it was the first, but it was one of the first. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a uh, uh, developer in town, a guy named Mike Clark, uh, I guess he took over in between being a, a, a hotel and the renovation, it was uh, uh, St. Regis, mm-hmm. um, I think, uh, uh, um, it had several different lives uh, along the way. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in, and, uh, that eventually moved out to Providence. And so, uh, I think that's when, when Mike got a hold of it. Um, so he, he basically demoed it down to its bones and we, uh, designed a, you know, had to redesign the plumbing, had to redesign the air conditioning system. And it, and in buildings that weren't designed for all those systems, it, it's pretty tricky, right? I mean, there's not spaces to run pipes and uh, to to do that kind of stuff. So we had to get creative, came up with some systems. Um, we, uh, uh, Capstone didn't actually install the system. We uh, we installed the plumbing. Um, 
but that's what's what got installed. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, if you go in that building now, it, it feels great. Looks, oh, they looks did a, beautiful. They did a great job, man. Yeah, they did a great it, job. With it's that. a great example of the historical preservation, and, and um, yeah, yeah, and and that happened all up and down uh, in in these buildings on Austin Avenue. You know, similar thing. The Raleigh Hotel, you mm-hmm. know, it, it got renovated. Um, uh, I mean, it's on multiple renovations of the original air conditioning system that got put in after it was built. Um, yeah. In fact, when when I look at the old uh, uh, Gildersleeve's f- photos from the beginning of the century, he's got some great shots of kind of down Austin Avenue from the rooftop of one of the buildings. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. But it's uh, sometimes when you look at those pictures, it's what you don't see that grabs your attention. So for me, I don't see air conditioners on the roofs of all the, of all the buildings. <laughs> and so it seems really strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That's funny. Well, uh, what else do we need to kind of finish out the story here as far as kind of, if I think of the last, you know, the last era of, you know, AC, maybe the last 30 years or so, I mean, what's your career as, as you've been involved and what it would have been the, advancements and kind of the things that have been implemented in that in those years. <clears throat> yeah. So, so really what's happening now, I mean, there's, if we continue to improve the efficiency, I mean, air conditioning consumes a, a huge part of the, uh, the power consumption of in, in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a lot of effort to reduce that and you do that by building better buildings, right? Codes have gotten more, uh, more stringent on insulation and glass and other things to, to make buildings more efficient. Um, so, so there's certainly been advancements there and just the construction science, uh, and then the equipment's uh, more efficient, but, but just like we see in other, in other industries, it's the, uh, uh, uh the digital revolution that's probably having the biggest effect on, uh, air conditioning right now. You know, making systems smarter. You know, everybody's seeing the little Nest thermostat that mm-hmm. can learn your patterns and turn your unit up and down as it as it gets to know you better. Uh, certainly, Andrew Mole would never have imagined that. Uh, in large commercial buildings, I mean, we put in some pretty sophisticated control systems. You know, uh, um, uh, you know that that are integrating all kinds of things from lighting to to uh, security, air conditioning systems, whatnot. So you not only can schedule, but you can diagnose things, see problems, optimize it. So uh, <clears throat> I think that's going to continue to move forward. There, there's been some slight advances, obviously, in the, in the systems. Um, um, but at the end of the day, it's the same technology that John Gorey tinkered around with in 1850. So... Well, this connects back to your career a little bit because uh, I'm, I'm very proud of our chamber building uh, just being a green certified. And, and so on a, on a level of that, I mean, what, what, what is that required? I mean, how is that building? Is it cool differently in a way that would make it achieve that sort of rating? I'm not sure what all that involves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, to, to achieve, uh, there's different levels of that uh, credential. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And uh, basically, um, in, in all phases of the construction project, you can earn points different ways. And so, uh, certainly, the better you insulate the building, the, the kind of glass you use, where you source the materials, what kind of roof you put on, uh, what kind of air conditioning system you use, some of those, those things uh, 
you know, get you to so many points that get you that, that rating. And, uh, um, we, we, uh, we did the air conditioning on that building as well. And I mean, it, it has a, a very, a very modern, nice system, you know, it's not extravagant, you know, it's not, it's not over the top, but, mm-hmm. um, um, yeah, very, very, very efficient building. Well, it seems to me we think of things that we ignored for a long time, you know, the, the afternoon sun orientation, shading, you know, you, things like that, that, you know, in the height of the AC, I mean, you, you know, when we're getting modern, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, we're kind of ignoring these things. But it seems now there's at least some attention or some consideration made to those sorts of factors. Yeah, yeah, and certainly uh, when when uh, uh, architects are laying out buildings or houses and you're thinking about orientation um, and, and the solar loads that, that are associated with that, where you're putting glass and mm-hmm. what kind of glass and awnings. You know, you see a lot of awnings on buildings now. Those have kind of come back because really the, the best way to keep from transmitting heat through a window is to keep it shaded mm-hmm. as much as possible. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, you, yeah, you're seeing uh, kind of a, uh, a way that uh, uh, our desire as a culture and a community to be more efficient, to be a better steward of our resources, uh, you know, we're, we're continually transforming and getting better. And it, you know, I can say um, – you know, in my in my time in this industry, so you know, whenever I started '93 to now, I mean, the way buildings are built is tremendously better. There's actually kind of a uh, a watershed moment in I think about 2000 when the codes changed drastically, mm-hmm. and we started seeing <clears throat> instead of just a hodgepodge of codes, kind of a, uh, a really a more succinct set of standardized codes across the state that were focused on energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so much so that you're much better. Any, any house you buy that was built after that is going to be built to a, a better standard. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not discouraging people from buying old homes. No. Still no, buy no. those. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, <clears throat> but for me, I'm going to always buy a house that was yeah. built after 2000. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, 30 years, Rick, is a long time. I mean, you've been in the business 30 years now, believe it or not. So Crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, I know you haven't slept in days because you've been researching the history of air conditioning in Waco. So there, are there other tidbits that you want to make sure we get in here that we may have missed <clears throat> along the journey? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I would just finish up by reiterating some of the things we said. You know, you, you think about um, or, or we don't think about all the advantages we get from refrigeration and air conditioning yeah. that, that have have almost become lost to us because they're so common. Uh but some of the things we talked about, the population boom for the South, I mean, that's well chronicled how that, how that uh, uh, made a big difference. Uh, you know, industry or, you know, GDP or our ability to, to be productive. You know, in, in Waco, Texas, we, um, you know, we've had two awesome back-to-back years in economic development. Um, and major industries coming to town, you know, I think about some of these, these uh, companies that we've attracted. Uh, I'm trying to think almost all of them are fully air conditioned buildings. Maybe, you know, some of them ha- have some manufacturing spaces that <clears throat> are ventilated and not air conditioned, but you know, that wouldn't be happening if we didn't have uh, these technologies. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, think about uh, something uh, you, you, we don't think about the internet being connected to air conditioning. Mm-hmm. 
but if you ever get a chance to tour a data center, even a small one, you'll be amazed at how much air conditioning it takes yeah. to keep it running. I mean, yeah. it's it's a major draw. In fact, a lot of the uh, uh, you know data centers that are, that are being built now are you know they're building them right next to a power plant because they are you know somewhere. Um, uh, I mean, there was an article the other day about Bitcoin Bitcoin mining. You know, there's some guys out at Bremond at the old uh, mines out there because all the power infrastructure was already in place to run the mine. That's not getting, you know, not getting used to the same extent. So it makes for a great place to to put their little data center for for uh, mining Bitcoin. So yeah, um, that's interesting. And, and there's an industry where I mean, loss of loss of cooling could be fatal. I mean, could be devastating. Yeah, very costly. Yeah. yeah. And something else we don't think about, and I'll, and I'll finish with this one, is increased life expectancy. Right? We, we get a lot of our, our bodies aren't stressed near as much. You know, our, our food is safer. Our medicines last longer. You know, there, there are a lot of, um, you know, secondary and tertiary benefits that come from cooling that, that keep us alive just a little bit longer. You made me think of Chicago there. There's always deaths in the summer in Chicago when they have a bad mm-hmm. summer because they don't expect it to get hot, and it does every now and then in mm-hmm. Chicago. So they don't have the cooling that we have. So you're right. And I mean, I think, I think that, that that is a, a uh, just an unrealized benefit that it's an everyday thing. Yeah. So whether you're sitting in your car listening to this, whether you're at home listening to this, you can look up, you can look at in front of you and see – if that cold air is coming out and kind of reflect uh, on the benefits that are be being provided, and you could thank a saint, saint like Rick Tullis, patron saint <laughs> of cooled spaces. <laughs> but uh, Rick, it's been uh, very cool having you on hey. uh, the uh, Waco History Podcast. Well, this is a long time coming, so I appreciate you joining me on this. Yes, yes. Well, I am thankful to be here. Enjoyed it. Good. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.